The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together this morning for the freedom that we have in this nation because there have been so many who have been willing to serve and to fight, so many who have given the ultimate sacrifice to purchase and to provide our freedom. Father, we pray for those who are serving now overseas that uh, you would uh, give them the courage to complete their mission. We pray for the wisdom of the military leaders and political leaders that in this time of uh, so much turmoil, so much complexity that you might give them uh, not only moral courage, but also uh, battlefield courage. Father, we pray now as we study your word that uh, we might be challenged with uh, all that you have given us and that we might have the courage to uh, put your word first and make doctrine the highest priority in our lives that we might advance spiritually. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to First John. 1 John chapter 3, we continue our study in this important section of, of uh, this first epistle which focuses on the spiritual life. One of the most important things I think that we need to understand is that 1 John was written about believers. It's written to believers about believers. It was not written about unbelievers. The contrast here is not between believer versus unbeliever, but believers who are advancing to the spiritual life Believers who are going to be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. Believers who are going to be victorious in their uh, spiritual life versus believers who are failures, believers who have been distracted by the affairs of day-to-day life and by believers who will lose everything at the judgment seat of Christ. That is the con- contrast. And those who advance spiritually are those who ad- abide in Christ, as we have seen many times. Those who abide in Christ are those who are walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. Those who are walking by means of God the Holy Spirit are having the fruit of the Spirit produced in them. As a result of that, they are advancing the virtue of, virtues of the spiritual life which far exceed uh, any level of human virtue, any level of human morality are being produced in the life of the believer. These Christian virtues are what is meant by the Apostle John when he says in 1 John 2.29 that... Um, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness, that is the application of doctrine, and that is, uh, the, the, that is expressed through the virtues in the spiritual life, everyone who practices genuine righteousness or virtue righteousness is uh, born again. And then in verse 1 of chapter 3, we have a command. I want to make a correction. Last time I think I said it was a present active imperative. It is a, an aorist active imperative. And the difference is that a present imperative is emphasizing something that should um, uh, continuously be present in the life of a believer. Uh, present imperative emphasizes something that should characterize the life of a believer. Not that an aorist imperative shouldn't, but at the time in which, at, at 
which point the writer is writing, he's emphasizing one, one thing or the other. And when an aorist imperative is used, the emphasis is on priority. Make this a priority. This is of ultimate and critical importance. And so the first word translated C in the New American Standard is the uh, Greek word edete, which is an aorist active imperative and should be translated uh, concentrate or focus on something. And, and he, he says focus on the fact that the love the Father has bestowed upon us is so great. That's how it should be translated, something to that effect. Concentrate on how great, how magnificent, how marvelous the love the Father has bestowed upon us is. That focus is on um, concentrating, meditating on the unearned, unmerited love of God expressed through to us through His grace at the cross and all that God has given to us. This, uh, we studied last time, uh, begins with the doctrine of antecedent grace, which is that grace that precedes creation, precedes the creation of, of the universe, precedes the creation of mankind, or the angels, precedes the creation of mankind. This is the grace that God is exemplifying in His plan that um, the Trinity set forth in what is called the Council of Divine Decrees. So we are to concentrate on how great a love that God the Father has given to us that we should be designated children of God. And the Greek word there is techna, which emphasizes the fact that we are in training. A child of a parent is someone who is in training. That's your primary responsibility, parents, not to give your kids a good time, not to give them a, an enjoyable childhood. Not that those things are wrong, but that's not your mission. Your mission toward your child is to train them so that they can be productive, mature adults and have right priorities and know how to face and handle the issues in life. And that means that part, part of that involves discipline. Part of that in, involves um, rewards. And the same is true in the Christian life, that as children of God, the emphasis here is on the fact that we are in training. We are advancing in the spiritual life. And this means that we have to learn certain skills, just as you should be training your children in terms of certain skills while they are uh, in your house, so that when they leave, they have mastered those skills. The same thing is true for us as children of God. We are in training. There are th different levels of development in the spiritual life. The basic level is spiritual childhood, which is called technon or technion in the Greek. And these basic skills, just to remind you, are to confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sins in order to be cleansed or purified. The Greek word there is katharizo in 1 John 1, 9, because it is only in a state of cleansing or purification that we can have fellowship with God and we can have a relationship with Him and we can abide in Christ. That leads to the second step, which is Ephesians 5.18, the filling by means of God the Holy Spirit and walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. Walking emphasizes the same thing as abiding, and that is a long-term uh, residence in fellowship. That means you stay in fellowship. You don't get out of fellowship. You don't look at 1 John 1, 9 like this is a, a license to sin, and I, uh, who cares what I do right now? I'll, I'll just confess it later and, and move on, and it won't have any uh, damaging consequences. We are to abide. We are to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. Third, we have to operate on the faith rest drill, mixing our faith with the promises of God, which means you have to know some promises. You have to memorize some promises. They have to be in your soul so that when the time comes, you can apply the promises and there's something for your faith to focus on. Fourth, there's grace orientation. That is fundamental to our passage in these first three verses is that these believers have understood grace. And that is the, the focus of meditation in verse 3, to concentrate on the grace of God that is the application of God's love because God's grace has provided everything for us and He has supplied everything for us. Second Peter 1.3 says He has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Second Peter 3.18 says that we are to grow by means of grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the fifth basic skill we have to develop. Only on the basis of these last three, faith, rest, drill, grace orientation, doctrine orientation, are we able to move into the next level and to begin to master what it means to have a personal sense of our eternal destiny. We are to have a personal sense of our eternal destiny, realizing that one day, it may be tonight, it may be tomorrow, it may be in ten years, 
But in someday soon, based on the imminency of the return of Christ at the rapture, we are going to be absent from the body face to face with the Lord, and just subsequent to the rapture there will be the convening of the judgment seat of Christ, where we will be held accountable for what we have done with all that the Lord has given us in relationship to our spiritual life. Some will receive rewards, crowns, inheritance, and positions of ruling and responsibilities in the eternal kingdom, and others will suffer loss. And it is at that point that we move past spiritual adolescence into spiritual adulthood. We have to focus on developing the love, what I call the love triplex, personal love for God, the Father, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. It is this area moving through the personal sense of our eternal destiny into this uh, advanced area of spiritual adulthood and applying the principles of Jesus Christ's commandment that we are to love one another as he has loved us that is the thrust of the of the main body of John's epistle here is that if you want to be a winner at the judgment seat of Christ if you want to have uh, rewards and responsibilities in the kingdom then you have to master these spiritual skills you have to get past uh, spiritual adolescence and get into spiritual adulthood the problem that I see is from my observation is very few believers get to the stage where they understand their personal sense of their eternal destiny. They do not understand those dynamics, and therefore they never really get into a real understanding of biblical love, love for all mankind and what that means. They, they never deal with what the Scriptures say on that. And the, the evidence of that, once again, Jesus said, If you love me, you keep my commandments. Keeping his commandments is relative to walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us. It's not some external legalism. We have to fight that. It's not some external legalism. It's not just some system of morality. But it is application of doctrine in every area of life with the result that we can go through any circumstance, any situation with his happiness, a perfect inner happiness, uh, applying the principle of James 1-2. Now, that's our basic chart, and that's our background. We have to understand this to, be, to uh, fully appreciate what John is saying in these three verses. In verse 1, he says, Concentrate on how great a love God the Father has given to us that we should be designated as children of God. What a fantastic privilege that God has given each and every one of us. We are children of God. We are adopted into His royal family. We are given all of the uh, privileges that we have in the Christian life. We share the uh, righteousness of Christ. We share the destiny of Christ. We share His priesthood. Uh, God has given us the Holy Spirit who indwells each and every one of us. Our bodies have been set apart as temples to God, to uh, the Father for the indwelling of the Shekinah glory of Jesus Christ. All of this is ours and much, much more. We have give, Each one of us has been given the same uh, privileges, the same assets, and the same opportunities in the spiritual life. It doesn't matter uh, whether you were born out in the country somewhere and had a uh, shallow, superficial education. It doesn't matter whether you have an IQ of 70 or 170. It doesn't matter whether you have an education at some of the finest schools in the country or no education at all. Every single believer is given the same spiritual assets, the same opportunities, the same privileges of every other believer, so that the issue is, what are you going to do with what God's given you? The issue is volition. The issue at the judgment seat of Christ is that you were given everything that the next person was given. And even though you may sit back and think, well, I was uh, mistreated by my parents and I was not given opportunities and they didn't take me to church and, and I was never told certain things, Jesus Christ is going to say, but you had the same opportunity as the next person. They had problems, too. Your problems might not be the same as the next person's. We might think that our problems are somehow worse than the next person's, that our circumstances are worse. And certainly, I believe my sin nature is a lot harder to control than your sin nature. We all think that way. Somehow, we want to justify our own failures. And God is saying to us that you've been given a Bible. You've been given a pastor who teaches the words consistently. You have all this information, and yet you fail as a believer. The issue is your volition and what you're going to do with what God has given you. So this is the thrust of verse 2. Beloved, now 
we are children of God. See, the focus in verse 3 is to focus on the fact that God loved us so much He made us children. And now, after we put our faith alone in Christ alone, at that instant we're adopted into the royal family of God. And we are now, after salvation, we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed or been manifested or appeared as yet what we shall be, period. We know that, that is, we know a principle that when he appears, when he is revealed at the rapture, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope on him, fixed is not in the original, this hope on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, what the key word to understand what John is talking about in verses 2 and 3 is the word hope. The word hope is the word that moves us from spiritual childhood to spiritual adulthood. Hope is a confident expectation, uh, a confidence of where we are going, what our destiny is, where we are headed. We are confident as at salvation that we're going to go to heaven. But when we get to spiritual adolescence and a personal sense of our eternal destiny, we begin to uh, move that confidence of an eternal destiny in heaven to a confidence at the judgment seat of Christ, that we will not experience shame at his coming, back that, which was mentioned back in 2.28. So there, the focus here is on hope. Hope is the mental attitude related to uh, coming to a personal sense of our eternal destiny. It is not hope in the sense that we normally use the word, which is the sense of sort of a, an optimistic wish. We might, might say, well, the weather's nice out there, the sun's shining. I know it's supposed to rain later today, but I hope it holds off until I have an opportunity to work in my yard, plant some flowers, or do whatever it is you want to do this afternoon. Uh, that is a, not a very confident hope. That is just an optimistic wish that... that um, uh, is not what we're talking about in the Scripture. When the Scripture uses the word hope, it is a confident expectation. It is a certainty of knowledge that something is going to take place. So uh, this is the key word here that, that this, the interpretation of this passage is going to revolve around because it emphasizes for us the advance through spiritual adolescence to spiritual adulthood. We are children of God, which means we are in a training ground right now, and we are being trained to handle the tests of life. That's what James wrote his epistle about, and there are many similarities between James and 1 John. The problem we have is a sin nature. Every one of us has a sin nature. Now, your sin natures are different from my sin nature, and for, for some of you, I count that a blessing. Some of you probably counted a blessing. You don't have my sin nature. See, everybody's sin nature is different. We have we have different uh, uh, areas where we easily succumb to temptation, and the next person sitting at the other end of the pew from us uh, easily succumbs to areas of temptation that are not a problem for for us. And so it's real easy sometimes for some Christians to kind of look down their nose at somebody else and say, "Why can't you get this straightened out?" Now, we have to remember what these dynamics are, the sin nature, so I want to review this briefly. The sin nature is the source of temptation. Now, I want you to recognize that the source of temptation is not your external circumstances. The source of temptation is not, uh, to bring it down to where most of us live sometimes, it's not that chocolate cake with the ice cream on it. The source of temptation is what's going on inside your sin nature. The occasion for the temptation is the circumstance. Uh, maybe it's a temptation to be angry because somebody has disappointed you or you don't get your way or somebody has not performed the way you think they should. That's the occasion for the temptation. But the temptation has its source in the sin nature. But sin doesn't come from the sin nature. Sin comes from your volition. So it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Everybody goes through different circumstances that give give occasion for temptation in the sin nature. And everybody's going to be tempted from their sin nature in a number of different ways. The core of the sin nature is a lust pattern. Now, those lust patterns drive us in many different directions. 
For some of you, the problem with lust is a lust for approbation. You want approval from people. You want to be liked. You want to have uh, some measure of popularity. You want people to approve of you and what you're doing. Other people have uh, a lust for popular. I mean, for a power. They they want to control people. They want to make sure that everything in their house is under control. And I think some of that is uh, manifest in the way some people handle household uh, uh, household chores. They want every single mite of dust to be under control in their house, every single detail in their life, and um, not that there shouldn't be organization, but that uh, you can take any of these things too far. Uh, Lust for power, power over people, and then when something doesn't go the way you want it to, then all of a sudden there is a reaction in terms of anger, uh, disappointment, maybe violence, maybe even to the point of of murder. Uh, You have uh, approbation lust, power lust, there's sex lust. Sex lust is what drives a lot of people, especially adolescents, when their hormones are going out of control. Uh, you have sex lust. You have uh, uh, chemical lust. Chemical lust can be manifested in terms of uh, uh, alcoholism. See, there, there may be a genetic tendency towards any of these things. We all look at our parents, and we see that we have certain traits that are similar to theirs, but you can't blame your parents. You can't blame your genes because you may have a tendency towards uh, an attraction towards uh, alcoholism, and that may be an area of weakness for you, whereas a person sitting at the end, other end of the pew has a, 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 the problem is anger and violence. Everybody's different. Everybody has various tests from their sin nature that are the issue in the spiritual life because ultimately the, the issue is goes back to Romans chapter 6, that we are to reckon ourselves, that is to consider on the basis of doctrine we have learned, that we are dead to sin. That is, that sin nature no longer is the, the pow- has the power over us it did before we were saved. So the goal of sanctification is to put to death the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the sin nature. There's chemical lust. There's uh, all kinds of different lust patterns that afflict each one of us, and that's the motivation. And those motivations are also related to two different areas in our sin nature. We have the area uh, uh, where we are strong, that is where it's easy for us to resist sin, and that produces morality or human good. Uh, human good and morality, that, that's the, the good deeds, the, the strength from our own ability to uh, withstand certain areas of temptation. There are many people who are more moral. There are many religious systems that produce moral people to a certain level, but that Morality is all considered uh, filthy rags in the sight of God. Then we have an area of weakness. That's what we all are pretty familiar with, what our areas of weakness are. Sometimes it's self-pity. Sometimes it's uh, uh, various areas of of, uh, overt sins. Sometimes it's mental attitude sins such as uh, bitterness, anger, jealousy, envy. All of these are those areas where we easily succumb uh, in the area of our lust pattern. We tend, the lust pattern tends to move us in two different directions. For some people, they have a move towards asceticism, legalism, and in an intellectual sense, this is manifested in rationalism. Uh, I don't want to go into all of that, but that is, is just the way it, it pro- projects itself. This is, often goes along with human good uh, in our area of strength. We are very good, very moral in certain areas. But that can lead to moral degeneracy as exemplified by the Pharisees. The opposite trend is towards lasciviousness, licentiousness, antinomianism, and intellectually that's irrationalism and mysticism, and that leads towards immoral degeneracy. Now, sometimes on some given days in certain areas, you may be prone towards self-righteousness and legalism, and in other areas, you may be prone towards lasciviousness our licentiousness. It all depends on the situation and on the particular day. But in the spiritual life, we have to learn to deal with the problems of our sin nature. And that comes through uh, faith rest drill, comes through grace orientation, comes through doctrinal orientation, energized through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, walking by means of the Spirit. We can't do it on our own. We have to do it through the Holy Spirit. And remember the Christian life is a supernatural way of life with a supernatural means of execution, and that means we can't do it apart from God the Holy Spirit. You can't go out and force your force some sort of uh, control over the sin nature. Now, 
There are three stages of salvation that we have to understand here as we go through this. The first stage is phase one, and that has to do with justification, where we are saved and positional sanctification. We're saved from the penalty of sin at phase one. At phase two, we are freed from the power of sin. That's putting to death the deeds of the flesh, Romans chapter 6. And ultimately, phase three, which is our hope when we're absent from the body face to face with the Lord, our glorification, that is when we're freed from the presence of sin. But who and what we are when we get into phase three is going to be determined by the decisions that we make here and now with relation to Bible doctrine and the application of Bible doctrine. And that is what John is addressing in these verses. Now, let me skip back one verse two. We read, Beloved, now we are children of God. His He begins with the vocative of address from agapetos, which is a term of endearment. So once again, John uses this term of endearment to those he addresses. Now, I want you to notice that, that he doesn't use the word technion that he has been using in terms of in terms of um, uh, young young children, because he's saying now you are children of God. That would be redundant. So he focuses on them as the objects of God's love. They are beloved. This is what he just got through saying in in verse one. See, uh, pay attention to how great a love the God the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, we are beloved because we are the objects of God's eternal love. He sent His Son to die on the cross for us, and by putting our faith alone in Christ alone, we become the special objects of God's love in the royal family. Beloved, now we are children of God. Now this whole phrase, beloved, now we are children of God, emphasizes for us God's provision of everything we will need to live the, children, live the Christian life. We are children. God is training us. He has given us everything we need to pass the test, to make it through the, the uh, various uh, uh, stages of training that we go through. And it is these doctrines that we have that we learn from uh, our coming to Bible class week in and week out. We learn about all the provisions that God has given us. And this enables us then to apply those principles and to advance through the stages of spiritual growth. We all have these same opportunities and the same privileges, the same spiritual skills, and God gives us, move through this, has given us these spiritual skills, and when we put them together, we have a protection for the soul, which I call the soul fortress. Now, if you look at this diagram, some of you have come recently, and so this is new, this is a soul fortress. The entryway is through 1 John 1, 9. And when we confess our sins, we surround ourselves with this protection that God has given us. And the, the blocks that build this fortress are, are the spiritual skills, which I went through earlier. As the more we learn about these skills and the more we apply them, the more they protect our soul. Now, John says, Beloved, that is, those of you who are objects of God's love, now, that is, now in the immediate present, since we have been saved, now we are children of God. That means that we are under God's training program, and His training program has as its goal to make us like the Lord Jesus Christ. So the emphasis here is on teachability and humility. As a child, you will never make it anywhere if you do not learn teachability and humility. And as a parent, you have to enforce that humility. That teaches your children authority orientation. Without those things in place, nobody can go anywhere. They will never be a success in life, whether it's in your job, whether it's in academics, whether it's in sports, the military, uh, in marriage, whatever it is, every field of life has spheres of authority. And if we don't learn a humility to be subordinate to those spheres of authority, then we will ultimately be a failure when we get into conflicts with those and, and authority. So we are to be trained. We are to be trained through the study of doctrine, which means we need to make doctrine the highest priority in our life. That goes back to the initial command to concentrate. We need to focus. We need to have something to concentrate on, and we only have the content that we are to concentrate on from learning the Word of God. So 
John says, the loved, now, that is, now that we are saved, we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. Now, the verb here, appeared, is the aorist passive indicative of phanerao, which means to make visible, to appear, or to reveal. It is the same word that we find back in verse 28. To skip, look back up the page to verse 28, you read, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears... See, now, it's interesting. John, it, John just loves to play with words. We have noted this many, many times. He will use different words. He has little uh, uh, puns that he likes to use, and, and paranomasia is the technical term for it in order to draw our attention to certain things. So he says here, It has not yet appeared what we shall be. We know that when he appears, phanerao again. So he's drawing our attention to the use of this word, even though he has a slightly different emphasis in this first use in verse 2, he's drawing our attention back to the rapture. Why? Because at the rapture, we will be taken to be with the Lord, and immediately after that there's the judgment seat of Christ, which was the focus back in verse 28. So we don't know what it will be at the, at the judgment seat of Christ. It hasn't appeared yet. It hasn't been revealed what we shall be. It won't be revealed until the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ, all of our works, all the gold, silver, precious stones, all the wood, hay, and stubble, everything's going to be piled up and is going to be put to the uh, metaphorical torch and burned up, and what remains is that uh, for which we will be rewarded. What remains is what sticks with us into the millennial kingdom. What remains is what is ours for eternity. So the decisions we make today are going to determine who and what we are in the millennial kingdom and who and what we are in eternity. So John says, It has not yet appeared as what we shall be. We won't know this until the judgment seat of Christ. So he says, now we are children of God, and it hasn't appeared as yet what we shall be. In other words, there's a potential here. And that potential is dependent upon our volition. We advance because of volition and our decisions to make doctrine the highest priority in our life, our decision to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, our decisions to apply doctrine through the faith rest drill, our decisions to uh, be humble and to operate on God's grace plan, grace orientation, and our decision to orient our thinking to doctrine. That is how we advance, so that the potential is emphasized here that it hasn't appeared what we shall be because it is still up in the air. The issue is your volition and my volition. How are we going to spend our time day in and day out during the week? How are we going to organize our schedule? To what priority is, is doctrine going to be? He says, it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. This will appear at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, let's review briefly, in case some of you are confused, what the dynamic is at death. The first thing that happens is there are two groups of people. There are those who believers who die physically, and then there are those who are the rapture generation. Now, we won't know who's in the rapture generation until that occurs, so we'll assume that we're not, because that's the majority of believers. At the instant of physical death, we are absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. At this point, we have an interim body. We don't know what the exact nature of that body will be, but the reality of it is clear from Luke chapter 16, which is not a parable. It is the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Lazarus was a beggar who begged outside the gates of this rich man's mansion. And every day the rich man would come and go and ignore Lazarus the beggar. But Lazarus the beggar was a believer, and the rich man was not. And when they both died, uh, Lazarus ends up in Abraham's bosom, which is paradise where Old Testament saints went before the cross. And the rich man is on the other side of this great division called uh, uh, this big gulf that separated the two uh, domains. And so you have um, Abraham's bosom over here, and here's Lazarus. Then there is this great divider between the two, and on the other side is torment. Now this is not hell. This is not uh, the lake of fire. 
This is the place of temporal punishment for unbelievers prior to the great white throne judgment. It's jail as opposed to prison. Now, Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom or paradise, and the rich man is over here in torments, and he looks across and he sees Lazarus. And he says to Lazarus, he says, he, he said, well, he says to Abraham, he says, let Lazarus come over here and stick his finger in the water. So apparently this is water. Stick his finger in the water and put it on my tongue so that he can cool it. So that implies that over here the torments are going to be fiery. So the implication from those statements are that Lazarus has a finger and the rich man's got a tongue. The implication of that is there's some sort of immaterial body. They're not like Casper the ghost. They're not just some sort of a, uh, you know, uh, glob or some amorphous, uh, smoky uh, fog floating through the air somehow. But there is some sort of temporary body, uh, but we don't know exactly what it's like, but it does seem to have at least fingers and tongues and probably a few other things. So... That's how we know there's an interim body. So if we die now, we're absent from the body, we're face to face with the Lord, and we get an interim body. Now, those who are advanced before the rapture go to the third heaven. And then they return with the Lord Jesus Christ to the second heaven. Now, the third heaven is the throne room of God. The second heaven is the, uh, is the, uh, uh, solar system and the universe, and the first heaven is the atmosphere of the earth. And so they're actually they're going to return to the first heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ in the clouds. And at that point, they're going to be reunited with their and receive their resurrection body. And that resurrection body, if the analogy from the Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection body holds true, is going to be made up from the molecules that made up the original mortal body, except it is going to be transformed into an immortal body, and if you've been too thin, you'll be a little heavier. If you've been too fat, you'll be a little lighter. Uh, you're going to look your very best, if not better, and there will be a radical difference between how we are now and how we will be then. We will be able to move at the speed of thought, and we will be able to move through material objects, and we will no longer be subject to physical pain uh, physical sorrow, there won't be uh, problems of sickness or illness or physical death. We will have an incorruptible body. If you are a member of the rapture generation, then what happens is you will, the dead in Christ will rise first. That refers to this group. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Now the difference between what happens to the uh, those who are dead in Christ and what happens to us is just a split second. We won't perceive that difference at all. And then we will be united with Christ and receive our resurrection body, at which point we will go to heaven where there will be the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. At the judgment seat of Christ, there will be an evaluation of our Christian life, not to determine whether or not we enter heaven. We're already there but to determine our role and responsibilities in the kingdom of God. So it hasn't appeared as yet what we shall be. That will occur at the judgment seat of Christ. And then we have a second sentence, something we know. It's the perfect active indicative of horao, which is a perfect tense that's used with the present tense meaning and emphasizes a present reality that right now as believers, John says we know something for sure, that when he appears... That is, at the rapture, again, he uses the same uh, verb, phanerao. In fact, it's an odd construction here in the Greek. It, um, it's a third-class condition. And it says, if, if he appears, and he will, it's used in that sense of a third-class condition, more probable reality. It's used as a third-class condition because we don't know when it will be. That's why it's not in a first-class condition. The subjunctive mood of the verb emphasizes the uncertainty of when the rapture will occur. Jesus said he doesn't know, the angels don't know, only the Father in heaven knows. So that is the doctrine of, of uh, imminency, that Jesus Christ can return at any moment and nothing has to take place. No prophecy must be fulfilled uh, for the rapture to take place. 
We know that when he appears, that is, at the rapture, we shall be like him. That is the transformation of our mortal bodies into immortal bodies. Our corrupt, corrupt bodies will put on incorruption, and we will be like him in our resurrection body. We know this, that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And for the first time, we shall have direct empirical uh, observation of Jesus Christ, and we shall uh, perceive him. The word here is, again, from horao, which means to perceive or attend. We will, we will perceive him exactly as he is. And that is the first time we will have direct uh, empirical uh, knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the focus in verse 2 is on the fact that we are going to be at the judgment seat of Christ with the Lord Jesus himself, and there will be an evaluation. So, verse 3. Everyone who has. Now, a couple of verses I want to pull in is before we get into verse 3. They go, that support the same idea. Colossians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, same word, phanerao, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, I want you to notice the connection the Apostle Paul is going to make. It's very similar to what John is going to do. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, that's at the rapture, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We have understood this already. That's when we put on our glorified bodies at the rapture of the church. Therefore, now, see, Paul is doing the same thing John is doing. He is using the judgment seat of Christ and our appearance with Jesus Christ as motivation for what we do here and now. Therefore, because we are going to be glorified and with Christ, therefore, because there will be an evaluation judgment, therefore, it should impact the decisions we make today. Colossians 3.5 makes the application. Because we are going to appear at the judgment seat of Christ, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, that is, in, in a sinful sense, your, your lust patterns of the soul, evil desires, uh, 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 that is the application of your trends, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So Paul does the same thing John is doing. He uses the, the uh, personal sense of our eternal destiny as a motivator for present decisions. That is what hope does, not the hope that we get at salvation, that we will, uh, the confidence that we will spend eternity in heaven, but the confidence at the judgment seat of Christ is a motivator for us today to make decisions consistent with the Word of God. This is what John does in 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who has this hope, not the hope, the confidence that we get at salvation of eternal life, but the hope of our appearing at the judgment seat of Christ, the hope that is not related to shame, because we are confident that we will appear without shame, we purify ourselves. That's the same idea that we have in Colossians 3.5. Now, that's important to note because I will raise a question in a minute, and this will help us answer that question. Then again, Paul does the same thing in 2 Corinthians 3.18, the same type of argument. He says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. There is an ongoing transformation taking place into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, that is based on, a part of that is based on purification in phase two in the spiritual life. First John 3, 3 reads, Everyone who has this hope, this confidence fixed on him, or everyone who has this confidence on him, purifies himself. Now, it begins with the uh, adjective pas, which refers to everyone, that is, every believer, and then it is qualified with a uh, relative uh, participle. It's a present active participle of echo, which means to um, uh, everyone who has something, who has a certain possession, has a certain mental attitude, and that mental attitude is expressed in hope. So everyone who has this hope fixed on him is going to purify himself. Now, before we get any further, I want to give sort of a preview of coming attractions. There are, there's a question we need to ask here. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him 
purifies himself. Is that purification phase one purification, where we're all purified at the instant of salvation, positional purification, or is it, or is it purification that takes ongoing purification that takes place in the spiritual life? Now we've already seen from the comparison with Colossians three, four, and five that it would seem that this is phase two purification, and indeed it is, and we will look at some details on that. Uh, a little more detail on that in just a minute. But first of all, we need to look at this word hope. It's from the Greek word elpis. The Greek word elpis, which means confident expectation. This is a key concept. Every time you see the word hope, you ought to think confident expectation. E-L-P-I-S. It is certainty. It is confidence. It is an absolute level of knowledge not based on empiricism or rationalism. It's based on the promise of God. Remember, the Scripture says that that faith, we, we walk by faith and not by sight. And that means that the result of what God has revealed to us is uh, when, when we're operating on faith, that knowledge is going to be more real to us than our feelings, than our experiences, than our emotions, than our circumstances. Uh, that's what walking by faith is, when we are living our life on the basis of what God says in his word. So we have a certain confidence and knowledge based upon what God has revealed to us in his word. So let's look at six quick points on uh, the doctrine of hope or confident expectation. First of all, this is an absolute confidence regarding something in the future. It is anticipatory. It is an absolute confidence related to something in the future. That something hasn't happened yet, but it's guaranteed to happen by the Word of God. So it's an absolute confidence related to something that has not yet happened, something in the future. Second, it is linked to the assurance of our salvation. That is hope one. The first type of hope that we encounter in the spiritual life when we understand the gospel is a confidence that we are going to spend eternity in heaven. But this confidence goes to the next level. This isn't just confident that we're going to go to heaven, but this is confidence at the judgment seat of Christ. We have confidence back in verse 28. The command here is to abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away. See, this is what John is teaching us, how we can have confidence at the judgment seat of Christ and not shrink away. So we, it's linked to assurance at salvation, but it goes beyond that. It is a confidence that is more real than our circumstances or emotions. Point number three. It is arrived at only on the basis of advanced knowledge of the Scripture. It's arrived at only on the basis of knowledge. It's not just confidence in a vacuum. It's not just, well, I'm confident because, because I just think God would, God would be good to me. How many people think that, and I heard somebody recently make this comment, that, well, I just believe I'm going to go to, go to heaven because I can't believe that God would operate any other way than to let everybody into heaven. Well, what's your basis for believing that? Well, that's just the way I think it ought to be. Well, how arrogant can a person get? See, it, there has to be knowledge. There has to be an object for that confidence, and it is the clear revelation of God that knowledge comes only through a study of the Word of God, through doctrinal orientation. So this confidence comes as the believer has advanced through grace orientation, that is, humility and teachability. He then is able to take in doctrine, and that's doctrinal orientation. Fourth, this confidence is at the judgment seat of Christ, which is converted to motivation for the judgment seat of Christ. This is a confidence that's related to the judgment seat of Christ, so therefore it is converted into motivation to be ready for the judgment seat of Christ. As we approach the sixth problem-solving device, a personal sense of our eternal destiny, our confidence will grow. And it, as the more we recognize where we're headed in eternity the more it will motivate us to be ready for eternity and not to be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. So that means that this, this hope, this confidence in verse 3, is related to phase 2 in the spiritual life. This is related to our advance in the spiritual life. It's not related to phase 1. It's not related to justification. And then finally, point 6, this hope anticipates divine blessing in eternity, and divine blessing in eternity is based on grace, an understanding of grace, and the imputation of 
God's perfect righteousness. This goes back to remember, remembering that the real issue here is not on what we do, but on what God has given us. God is absolute righteousness and perfect justice. We lack righteousness at salvation. The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is applied to us or imputed to us so that we now have His righteousness. Because what the righteousness of God uh, approves, the justice of God is able to bless. God is able to give us all of these blessings. Now, it's only when we develop capacity righteousness, which is as we develop this through this chapter, we're going to learn that, first of all, there's imputed righteousness. And then as we grow and advance, we develop a capacity for blessing. And that then develops into applied righteousness. And so we're going to move from imputed righteousness to capacity righteousness to applied righteousness. And all of this is because God has given us uh, 39 absolutes of salvation plus the one relative, which is uh, filling of the Spirit, which we can lose when we sin. We have these 40 things of salvation. We have all of the uh, spiritual skills. We have all of our spiritual assets and divine blessing. Everything was given to us by the grace of God at salvation. And because we exploited the grace of God in the spiritual life, we developed capacity righteousness and applied righteousness, and the result of this is rewards. But those are rewards are based not on who and what we are, but because we continue to exercise positive volition day in and day out, moment by moment, resisting the temptation of the sin nature, applying doctrine, staying in fellowship, abiding in Christ, and exploiting the grace of God. We get to rewards because of the grace of God, not because of who and what we are. Now, this hope is motivational. And that's the point of John 3, 3. Everyone who has this confidence, who recognizes we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, everyone who has this hope on him, and that is our hope, it's directed towards the judgment seat of Christ, everyone who has that hope purifies himself. Now, we have to recognize that at the judgment seat of Christ, there are going to be differences. Some are going to be failures, some are going to be successes. See, true freedom means that there are going to be differences. That's why in a nation where there is real freedom, there are some people who are going to be impoverished and live in the ghetto, and there are going to be other people who live in mansions in places like uh, uh, Beverly Hills in California or River Oaks down in Houston, or I don't know where those places are around here yet, but... Uh, every, the difference is how they use whatever they were given. It's up to volition. Newport, over there. Now, so some, now some of you, if you uh, use your volition wisely, apply doctrine, then you're going to have places like that in heaven. The issue is your volition. Everybody's given the same thing. It's not like here on earth. We're born, some of us are born in some families with more, some families with less. Geography makes a difference where we are, the school systems we grow up in. All of that can make a difference. But in God's plan, in the perfect spiritual life, everybody's given the same privileges, the same assets, the same access to God. And the only thing that makes a difference between the loser believer and the believer who is a success is how they use their volition. And so this is what's going to be revealed at the judgment seat of Christ. So everyone who has this hope on him purifies himself. Now, this is an interesting word. This is not the word katharizo, which we find in 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. And sometimes we translate that word purification. It's often translated that way in the Old Testament. But this is not katharizo. This is the Greek verb hognizo. This apostrophe, what looks like an apostrophe up here is a rough breathing mark, so it's transliterated with an H, H-A-G-N-I-Z-O. Hognizo, and it means to purify. Now, in the Old Testament and in John and Acts, this is related to ritual purification. So that doesn't help us a whole lot in understanding its meaning here. But there are three times, including this passage, that this word is used in the epistles, and how it is used in the epistles is informative for our spiritual life. So let's look at these two passages. 
Uh, before we wrap up this morning, let's flip over to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 6. James 4, verse 6. This is the basic command here, that, or the basic principle, God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the arrogant, but gives grace to the humble. Now, verses 7 through 10 give us a picture through 10 mandates, 10 imperatives, of what humility looks like, what grace orientation is going to look like in a believer. First command is submit, therefore, to God, and it is parallel to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. By submitting to God, we resist the devil. Then verse 8, we have the command to draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. How do we have rapport with God? How do we draw near to God? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. That's the verb, the imperatival form of katharizo. And it is used in parallelism with the second command, purify your hearts. So katharizo has to do with confession of sin, but hognizo, purification of your hearts, that relates to learning doctrine. Heart being a, a synonym for that internal thinking area of the soul made up of of the noose and the heart. The heart is where the innermost beliefs are in the soul. So we are to purify. How do you do that? You do that through first confession of sin and then doctrinal orientation, taking in the Word of God. So it is related to uh, the cleansing of 1 John 1, 9 and confession, but it goes to removing human viewpoint concepts and thinking from the, the thinking of the soul. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. That's uh, uh, the Greek word daisukos, which has to do with the fragmentation in the soul, the fragmentation of thought that takes place in the carnal believer. So here we have an example where purification or hognizo relates to the advance in the spiritual life after salvation. Turn to one other passage, back towards First John. Turn to Second Peter or First Peter, chapter one, and we're going to start in verse thirteen. Peter is talking about the same basic subject matter of both James and John. He's dealing with, in some degree, suffering, adversity, but he's focusing on the dynamics of the spiritual life. And I want you to notice the similarity between this passage and the passage in 1 John. He says, Therefore, gird your minds for action. That's a metaphor for preparing your minds for action. Girding has to do with the fact that in the ancient world, they wore robes. <laughs> and, so, and so if you were wearing a robe and you had to go into action, or you were wearing a tunic as a soldier and you had to go into action, you had to get that robe out of the way so you wouldn't trip on it. So you'd pull it up, tie it in a knot, stuff it in your, in your uh, belt, and get it out of the way. And that's what it means to gird up. It means to remove any distractions from your thinking. That's a real good application there. Remove any distractions from your thinking so you're ready for action in the Christian life. Keep sober. That is, keep a balanced, objective mentality. That doesn't mean don't get drunk. It means, uh, although drunkenness is a sin, the idea of keeping sober here is an idea of mental objectivity and mental focus. Keep sober. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you where at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, do you notice any similarities between the mandate here and that in 1 John? We are to focus our hope, our confidence on what? On the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is uh, category two hope, the hope that relates to the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. That is... Don't be conformed to the lust patterns. Don't give in to the lust patterns of your sin nature. But, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. That is the same mandate we have back in, uh, or the same principle we have expressed in 1 John 2.28 or 29, that we are to be righteous. We are to live a righteous life. Uh, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, skip down to verse uh, 20. Excuse me, verse 21 just to pick up the context, who through him, that is through Jesus Christ, who was the uh, spotless Lamb of God that was given for our redemption, who through him as believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith, that's its salvation, and hope, that is your confident expectation which motivates you in the spiritual life, are in God. 
And then we come to verse 22, and we're going to have to do a little exegetical work here and clean up the translation because there are some textual problems here. And I think that the uh, majority text has the better readings here, it's, uh, better documentation on those readings. And that's the version uh, probably you'll have in a King James or New King James version. Incidentally, uh, I've been messing around with some translations lately, and uh, I really think if you want a study Bible, uh, of course the Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible is a good one, but that the notes there primarily relate to prophecy. But the uh, Thomas Nelson Study Bible, the Nelson Study Bible, is it's in the New King James Version, and it is an excellent study Bible. Uh, the notes are really good. The guys who did a lot of the work, and I've been looking at it in John and in First John, um, hold to a free grace gospel. Earl Rodmacher, who's the chancellor of Western Conservative Theological Seminary, one of the theologians who's uh, most prominent in the free grace gospel movement, was the general editor. And my good friend Wayne House uh, was the editor of the New Testament. And I know some of the guys who did some of the translation in the New Testament. That's always important. And uh, most people don't know enough to know um, about who these guys are. They read the names. They may be a familiar name here or there. But fortunately, with the Lord has put me in a place where I know who a lot of these guys are. I know them professionally. I've read enough of their writings to have an idea of what their theology is. That's why I'm so disgusted with that uh, net Bible that's available through the Internet now, uh, the NET translation. Uh, most of it's translated by... by uh, current faculty at Dallas Seminary, but they're almost all lordship, and in so many places, when you have a choice between uh, two different options, they always take a lordship position, and in more places, not just lordship, but in many other areas, I find a strong disagreement uh, in their translation, and so I'm very pleased. In fact, I gave, a co- or Dan got a copy of that last summer, and he's been using it, and he is incredibly impressed with the uh, Nelson Study Bible as well. So if you're looking for a good study Bible, I'd I'd recommend that. Verse 22 says, Since you have in obedience to the truth. And I think we ought to translate that. I have a corrected translation up here. Because you have. Starts off with a causal phrase. uh, Because you have. Starts off with a causal participle. Because you have, by means of obedience to the truth, through the filling of the Spirit, purified your soul. So the main verb is hognizo, purified your soul. And the, the um, secondary clauses here, uh, the uh, prepositional clause, by means of obedience to the truth, and the second prepositional clause, through the filling of the Holy Spirit, describe the mechanics of how the soul is purified. Because you have by means of obedience to the truth, that's doctrinal orientation, through the filling of the Holy Spirit, and see, you don't have that clause in the in your New American Standard, but in the Greek what you have uh, literally is just through the Spirit. Through the Spirit, and I, this would be the filling of the Spirit. So uh, you have that in King James and New King James. Uh, by means of truth, through the Spirit, that is the filling of the Spirit, you have purified your souls for a sincere, and the Greek word there is better translated, I think, a um, an intense... Uh, or a diligent, uh, it's an impersonal love of the brethren, a diligent love for one another, a sincere love, or that is a true love, a genuine love produced by God the Holy Spirit, a true love of the brethren, impersonal love. Fervently, that should be translated diligently, which involves volition and consistency. Diligently love one another from, the, from a clean heart. Notice heart there again, as we have in James chapter 4, emphasizes the thinking of the soul, that love comes not, it's not emotional, but it comes from thought. And that we are to love one another from the thinking in the soul. Why? Because that has been purified. So purification has to do, once again, with thought. It is not simply confession of sin, but it is moving from simply being in fellowship to being filled by means of God the Holy Spirit and having a heart that is being purified by uh, taking in doctrine. So that is the thrust of purification. Now let's go back and wrap up with 1 John 3. 1 John 3 says that, that beloved, that is, those who are objects of God's uh, antecedent grace and His love at the cross, now, now that we have put our faith alone in Christ alone, we are children of God. That is, we are members of God's royal family, and we are being trained by God for spiritual 
uh, maturity and for our roles and responsibilities in the uh, millennial kingdom. It has not yet appeared as yet what we shall be, because that appears at the judgment seat of Christ. We know that is because of doctrine revealed. We know that when he appears at the rapture, we shall be like him. We'll receive a resurrection body, because we shall see him just as he is, and that's the first time we have empirical knowledge of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, and everyone who has this hope, that is a confidence at the judgment seat of Christ, a confidence on him, purifies himself, that is not only confession of sin, but also we are going to completely renovate the thinking of our, uh, of our soul, the thinking and the mentality of our soul with Bible doctrine. Now that establishes the positive, and then starting in verse 4, John's going to focus on the negative, that is dealing with the sin in our life, and we'll come back and address that next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you that, that we are recipients of your antecedent grace and your love, and you designed a perfect grace plan to send your Son to die on the cross to pay for our sins. Father, we pray for anyone here who is uncertain of their eternal salvation or unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would make that sure and certain right now. All you need to do right where you sit is put your faith alone in Christ alone. It's not a matter, uh, it's not an issue of empiricism, it's not an issue of rationalism, it's not an issue of getting enough facts, it's an issue of understanding what the Word of God teaches, that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, and that by putting your faith in Him, you can have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge every believer here with the uh, principles that we have studied today, that we are to advance in spiritual life because we, have, we are to have confidence at our Lord's appearing and confidence at the judgment seat of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.